Hi everyone, this is Marsha, and I'm the director and founder of the Brooklyn Caribbean Literary Festival. I'm thrilled and elated to announce the birth and launch of our brand new podcast, CocoPod. Consider the aromatic CocoPod and how, after carefully ripening under the Caribbean sun, it generously offers up its rich fruit in due season. CocoPod by BCLF aims to provide a similar delight. Each episode is a seed, a nugget of an original Caribbean story told in the voice of its writer. Each story, an infinite gift by the offshoot of an ancient griot tradition. As a whole, Caribbean stories are like a mighty tree whose branches extend, offering shade and comfort wherever her children settle. The BCLF Cocopod will burst open with the finalist and winning stories of the 2021 BCLF Short Fiction Story Contest. You laugh as two friends mark time and the milestones of their lives as they drink their way across the top shelf of a neighborhood bar in Rum Shelf. Confront grief, mourning, and family secrets in distinctly different ways in The Whalers and Bitter Tea. Two stories in which the reflections on death are as far north and south as the writer's islands themselves. You'll root for a plucky, talented singer who, on the day of a very special performance, takes matters into her own hands in singing with the orphans. And you'll also experience the reunion of a daughter and her wildly famous estranged father who is losing his memory in Daughter 4. From my team and the legion of Caribbean writers behind us, we bring to you the warmest of welcomes. This episode contains the very moving Singing with the Orphans by Diana McCauley. I'm a Jamaican writer and environmental activist. I've received many awards for my environmental work and was conferred with the Order of Distinction Officer Class by the Jamaican government in 2016. I've written five published novels and numerous short stories and articles, often with an environmental focus. My most recent novel, Daylight Come, was published by People Tree Press in October 2020. So this is Singing with Orphans. Do I have to go to the carol singing tonight, Sister Patrice asked. Of course, Patrice. Why wouldn't you want to go? The Lord has blessed you with a gift and you must use it for his glory. Patrice looked at the wooden floor. She knew it's every crack and creak, every raised nail, because the girls had to take turns cleaning it, down on their knees using coconut husks to apply a reddish polish. She did not want to explain her reluctance to sing in public to Sister Abigail. Her voice was hers, maybe the only thing she truly owned and she hated to share it. She'd been caught singing alone a year ago and she'd been sent to throw vegetable cuttings on the compost heap. You can sing, Sister Elizabeth had exclaimed, and then sent her to bed without supper for a week to atone for the sin of hiding her God-given voice. You'll get a nice dinner, said Sister Abigail, probably even ham, definitely rice and peas. Patrice didn't answer. The Sterlings will invite only the best people and collect money for the orphanage. Sister's voice had sharpened. 
I want you to go to the dormitory now and pray to be more appreciative of what is done for you, Patrice. Yes, sister, said Patrice. She hated Christmas. The Sacred Heart Home for Girls was in a colonial-style house with a big yard at the edge of downtown Kingston. The girls blessed the donut prayer every evening. Four nuns and 11 orphan girls lived there, the girls ranging in age from 9 to 16. The nuns shared the bedrooms. The girls slept in army cots in what had once been the dining room. Patrice had been born in a place called Country and brought to the nuns by a man who had named her. That was all she knew of her birth. Orphanage was a black and white place. There were few colors inside the old house, just the floors, the warm brown of heavy ornate furniture, the faded prints of upholstery and curtains. The girls were black, the nuns white. The nuns wore a black and white habit. The girls wore a white tunic over a black blouse and skirt. The walls, sheets and plates were white. Outside, the trunks of the trees and the curbs were whitewashed. The trees believed the nuns would paint the grass and the leaves of the trees if they could. She often thought of things the nuns could not make into black or white. The sky. They would never reach the sky. She longed for a bed near the window because then she would see dawn color the sky every morning. She stood in a line with seven other orphans waiting to get on the bus. Patrice was 12, the youngest of the seven chosen to sing. Maybe she would see the sunset tonight. There was a new driver in the minibus. He too wore black and white, black peaked cap, white shirt, black trousers, black shoes. He greeted Sister Abigail who sat behind him, taking up the whole second row. The girls crowded into the back seats, vying for a window to feel the breeze brought by motion and to better see the world outside the orphanage. She was going to have to sing in public for the first time. Could she get away with just mouthing the words? No, Sister Abigail seemed to listen especially for her voice. Just think of ham and rice and peas, she told herself. The bus turned through a gate and entered a long driveway. Two people wearing servants' uniforms were filling brown paper bags with sand and adding candles to each one. Another carried a stack of chairs. A man hurried up to them and flagged them down. You're not supposed to be here, he hissed to the driver. Go around to the back gate, make haste. The driver reversed onto the street and drove around a corner lot with a graceful grey house set in the middle of a mowed green lawn. They went in through a back gate between two Ponciana trees. Now, girls, Sister Abigail said, waiting for the driver to open the door of the bus. Here we are. Do your best. An elderly white woman wearing a floral dress and a string of pearls stood at the top of a short flight of stairs at the back of the house. Ah, Sister Abigail, the woman said. Welcome. Have the girls eaten? Would they like some refreshment before the program? Thank you for having us, Mrs. Sterling, Sister Abigail replied. I think refreshments after the performance would be best. If you would show us where the girls can change. At least some iced water, Mrs. Mrs. Sterling said, turning to speak to someone behind her. Lorraine, eight glasses of cool water to the front room. Use the green tumblers. Nine if you count the driver, Patrice. Mrs. Sterling led them through a large kitchen, a dining room with a shining wooden table, a narrow corridor, and then into a bedroom. It was the same kind of house as the orphanage, but here the rooms had retained their original purpose. Patrice drew a deep breath. The house smelled of lemon pledge and abundant food. Her throat was suddenly dry and her stomach cramped. 
Two white children stood in the bedroom, the older of the two running her hands over a pile of costumes on a four-poster bed. Angel wings were stacked with a white, on a white cloth on the floor, and an armchair held halos made of gold tinsel. The white girls turned, and the older one held onto her skirt and made a little bobbing movement. Oh, sweet, Sister Abigail said. You must be Alice Sterling. Yes, miss, and this is my sister Elaine. You are very well-mannered, Alice. Who taught you to curtsy? My ballet teacher, said Alice Sterling. Sister, the piano is in that drawing room over there, Mrs. Sterling said, nodding in the direction of an even larger room. Do feel free to practice for the next half hour or so. Our guests will soon be arriving. My granddaughters will just sing along with the choir. Mrs. Sterling held out her hands to the white girls. Let's get your costumes. You'll change in my room. She stopped. But where is Vanessa? She's probably in the plum tree, Granny, Alice said. Mrs. Sterling shook her head. Go get her, Alice, she said, and the older white girl left. The tree sensed this Vanessa was often not where she was supposed to be. There was a knock on the open door and a woman came in carrying a tray with a pitcher and glasses. Thank you, Lorraine, Mrs. Sterling said. Over there, she nodded at a small table and then turned to Sister Abigail. See that door, Sister? There's a, a, a waiting area where the girls can sit after they've dressed. Bathroom through the other door. I'll come and get you when it's time. Do you have everything you need? Yes, indeed, Mrs. Sterling, Sister Abigail said. Patrice didn't want to take anything from the Sterlings, but she was thirsty, and yes, she still had to sing. The water from the pitcher was icy and made her teeth hurt. Ham, rice and peas, sunset. Sister Abigail sorted out the loose tunics by length, measuring against the girls. The angel wings were secured by a strap across their chests, and then the costumes slid over their heads with a slot in the back where the wings came through. The orphans had to remove their blouses. The tinsel halos were all the same size, and Patrice's came right down to her eyebrows. When the girls were all dressed, Sister Abigail inspected them, straightening wings and adjusting necklines, securing halos with bobby pins. Then she let them into what Mrs. Sterling had called a waiting area, which was a side veranda enclosed by white wooden slats. Patrice would not see the sunset. She could hear people talking outside and low laughter and glasses clinking. She felt cheated of enormous things there in the place of waiting, wearing her angel costume. Night fell. It's time, girls, Sister Abigail said. She led the way back into the bedroom where lights had been turned on. Mrs. Sterling and the two white children dressed as angels stood in front of a tall mirror. A third girl stood to one side, a skull on her face. She wore a soiled party dress and her hair was uncombed. She offered no greeting, certainly no curtsy, but her eyes met Patrice's and held them. We're missing a costume, sister, Mrs. Sterling said. For my granddaughter, Vanessa, who is, I am sorry to say, inevitably late. Missing a costume? There was a tremor in Sister Abigail's voice. The adults conferred. The orphans looked at the floor. Alice practiced her curtsy in front of the mirror. It seems we counted wrong then, Mrs. Sterling said. The white girl, Vanessa, stood like the old woman, same rigid stance, same skull, arms folded across her chest. Patrice wanted to whisper to her, you and me, let's run. She envied Vanessa, who would surely not have to sing. It's not a problem, Sister Abigail said. She looked at the orphans, all dressed as angels, assessing their heights. Patrice, come here. 
Hear about Miss Vanessa's sides. Take off your costume and give it to her. No one moved for a moment. I am not going to have to sing, Patrice thought. I didn't see the sunset, but I'll stay here until the singing is over, and then we'll get ham and rice and peas. She must hide her relief. She lifted the halo from her forehead and held it out to the white girl. No, Mrs. Sterling said, taking the circle of gold from her. Vanessa will just have to do without a halo. Sister Abigail helped Patrice wriggle out of the costume and the air was cool on her skin. Put your blows back on. We'll stand at the back. We'll put the white material over your shoulders. She pointed at the cloth on the floor where the wings had rested. Black blows, white cloth, black girl, thought Patrice. And I still have to sing. Vanessa stared. She would look ridiculous dressed as an angel. Then Vanessa Sterling's shoulders slumped and she left, carrying the tunic and the wings. Right, girl, Sister Abigail said. We'll come all ye faithful first, just like we practiced. Line up. The girls walked out onto the veranda and Patrice saw the rows of white people sitting on the dark lawn, their faces lit by a rising moon, the glow of their cigarettes making red scribbles in the night. She stood behind the girls who were properly attired and looked up at the evening sky, felt a soft breeze on her face, and she sang for herself. She listened for Vanessa's voice but did not hear it. The choir swung into O Holy Night and Patrice hit every note. The black girls and the white girls, all except one, dressed as angels. The rich people on the lawn they owned, the servants in the kitchen, yes, they were part of an old and weary world which merited no rejoicing. And although tonight was not the time to run, and she knew there would be no ham or rice and peas for dinner, this, she vowed, was the one and only time she would ever sing to this kind of audience from the veranda of such a house. The choir prepared for silent night. In the momentary silence, Patrice shrugged herself free of the cloth across her shoulders and let it fall to the ground. Then she turned on her heel and went inside the house. Maybe Lorraine would give her some hard bread. She did not look behind her to see if the white girl followed. There is something even more special about hearing you read this story than reading it on paper. Jeez, I'm like cheering for her. She's so rebellious. <laughs> the stark um, contrast between the life of the privilege and these children in the orphanage. And I think... Um, experiencing it through her eyes just is even more damning, right? Like it makes all of the inequities even harsher. That was so beautiful. So Diana, I wanted to say that it was our express honor to open up the inbox and find a story submission from you. Really? Why? Three <laughs> <laughs> of the most ardent fangirls, right? Wow. Um, Melissa. That's so sweet. Melanie and and me and you know we have this blind judging process and it's for a reason right so we've got the cover letter and then you've got your manuscript that's supposed to be devoid of any kind of information so it was a, an additional joy to get the list from Barbara and Faisal and see your name on it like we didn't know the story like we, we just didn't know anything um so in terms of the award itself, I would say that your story submission, you're kind of you're playing exactly into the hand that we tried to deal 
which was to create a space for writers who live in the Caribbean. And, you know, we are from, we're born and raised in Trinidad. We're all born and raised in Trinidad. And we felt like we wanted to build this bridge to move the stories between the Caribbean, which is a very fertile place, and we have our very distinct storytelling tradition and bring those stories um, into this North American consciousness of the market that we've tapped into. And so we we know you and I know you as a climate fiction writer, right? But of course, you wear many other hats. And there's the phenomenal brooding Daylight Come, which is your most recent novel. And then I remember things um, photographically. There's the novel before that was with Papillot Press with a little boy and the sea. What was the name of that novel again? Gone to Drift. There you go. Gone to Drift. Um, And all of these novels speak to very specific um, themes about climate and awareness and sustainability and kind of man, whether it's versus nature or man in harmony with nature, right? Um, your story that is the finalist, that is a finalist singing with the orphans makes a stark deviation from that. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where the story came from and what was that process a little bit? Of course, trying to contract the story into 2000, a 2000 word limit. So just quickly, one of my early experiences as a writer was submitting to the Caribbean writer a very autobiographical story. And they sent me back a little postcard, which I'm sorry I didn't keep, but it was really, it it really influenced me. And obviously, you know, I had a privileged background and what the Caribbean writer said to me is, you can write, but this is not the subject. You must write about the real Jamaica, you know? And so I really took that on board and which is why my novels and other stories are about, about quote unquote, the, the Caribbean writer called the Real Jamaica. But there's a Jamaica of the, the, the sort of privilege that I experienced growing up. And my, my aunts did in fact have carol singing by orphans on their veranda at Christmas time, which I remembered, remembered quite well. And then one of my sisters, who is a better keeper of records, sent me a photograph of me and my two sisters in these angel costumes. Well, <laughs> that, was, that was the end of it. I just thought about it and you know what did it really mean and imagine the the characters that appear in the story so that is phenomenal it's funny that you say that when I was growing up um, I sang in my in my school choir and a private choir and we would go out to the homes of the wealthier Trinidadians these huge mansions um, and sing the novel, one, the story. Sorry, one of the things that I love is that for me, it really brought me back to that time and that place, right? And I'm gonna read um, a line from one of the, and I'm gonna circle back to that real Jamaica comment in a little while. But the judge's comment says that singing with the orphans addresses long-standing hierarchies of class and race and their colonial and post-colonial intersections. Do you think that it's a fair, and I'm sure that's a, that comment um, about what you were writing about wasn't the real Jamaica. Um, and I'm seeing Elizabeth Nunes talks about that a little bit, right? Like she doesn't write very, and she's the namesake of the prize. She doesn't really write about this hard scrabble Caribbean, which is a real thing for many of our 
the people who live there. But do you think it's fair to say that writing about privilege is a is an ill representation of the place that we come from? No. Um, the question is: Is it interesting? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, can you are the characters that they exist in that space interesting? What's the story? What's the theme? All, all the questions of, of, of creating fiction arise. But I guess what interests me most is, a, is when those worlds collide, when there's the intersection between the hard scrabble is a, is a good way of looking at it, yeah, or the yeah. maker, the Caribbean of most of our peoples, because it is most of our people, where that intersects with the, the small, the relatively small number of people who had this entirely different life. Life. It's that intersection that interests me. It's that collision of worlds. It's the relationship between between those worlds. And there's something of that in my first novel, Dog Heart, which is where a middle class woman tries to help uh, a child begging at a traffic light. You know, so they. So they this is not now the, the the sort of privilege of singing with the orphans, but middle class Jamaica people living in Mona. You know, um, yeah. More on Jamaica intersection intersecting with inner city Jamaica so it's that that interests me what I like is that when you wrote about this story it was kind it just left the reader to make their to arrive at their own conclusions right and judge each of the characters the way that they deemed fit like there was no um there was no prevarication you didn't put anything into that and I, I think that's beautiful what do you tell me one thing you love very much about Christmas in Jamaica I actually also hate Christmas <laughs> <laughs> you hate Christmas I, I think the best thing about Christmas is the weather is the light is the coolness that comes across us is the you know the blooms so it's, yes it's the actual physical time of year yeah but to me Christmas is exactly as in the story this really sad time where we confront the inequalities the inequities the hardship that's still present with us yeah it's true diana thank you so much you know thanks for your word of appreciation marcia you know writing is a is a lonely thing and you send out your work and you don't you often don't hear anything about how it's received so it's it's great to meet a reader thanks so much this meant this means the world to us take care and thanks very much again